Hello, Dangerous Minds podcast listeners. This is Robespierre, the new DMP audio engineer. We had a fantastic conversation with Nick Poole of SparkFun that covered a bunch of great stuff. It ran a bit long, so we decided it would be a good idea to split it into a two-parter. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of our chat with Nick Poole. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Cooper, a sysadmin who lives open source solutions, and Cursor, a software dev with a master's specializing in RF technology. Up first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and or email us at info at DangerousMinds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. As you know, we have a special bulletin on this podcast as well, uh, which is about Rich Lee. You guys know what's going on. I think the last donation that he had was two months ago, and he's at $7,955 of a 10.8K goal. So we just need to remind him that we are still there. Um, so get on there and donate if you can. The link is gofundme.com forward slash cyborgdad. And this week on Dangerous Minds Podcast, we have Nick Paul of SparkFun. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No problem. Could you um, start by introducing yourself and telling us how you got into this crazy world of biohacking, grinding, and transhumanism, and also uh, what it means to you? Yeah. So I'm Nick Poole. I'm probably best known on the internet as a creative technologist for a company called SparkFun Electronics. I'm in a lot of their videos. I build a lot of projects. I try to put a lot of documentation online about uh, what I've built and the programming that I've written for them and just kind of try to push, you know, more open source, more free information um, sort of stuff out into the world and contribute back to the community that I've gotten so much cool stuff from. And of course, I'm also advertising for SparkFun when I do that, but it pays the bills. So people have seen me on YouTube, probably on SparkFun's channel. If not, you might know me from biohack.me. I'm not on there very much, but I'm on there. And of course, my personal Facebook page, I'm always on there posting pictures of gadgets and things. And I think actually that I met or I got to know Cooper through um, the Dangerous Things Facebook page. I try to stay involved with that too. So what does biohacking mean to me? So biohacking, it's interesting. I got involved in biohacking mostly because as I was growing up, you know, uh, I was really into um, sci-fi and um, sort of the, like the fantasy aspect of biohacking, right? So all of these uh, movies and comic books and things where you had people with cybernetic like implants and augments and they were superhuman. And at the same time, there was all this stuff coming out in, you know, popular mechanic, popular science, um, Scientific American that was saying like, you know, this could be the future. And I remember when I was really young, you know, one of the first sort of ideas of biohacking I had was I actually, <laughs> I used to have this, um, you know, those 101 electronics kits boards. It has like little springs on it that you can stick wires into and build circuits. 
And I figured out pretty early on that if you bias a transistor just right, then you can do like really low conductivity switching, right? So you can like hold on to two pieces of wire and light up an LED by completing the circuit basically. And I used to hook my little brother up to that, <laughs> to that circuit board. <laughs> so my, my early experiments in biohacking weren't ethical, probably. They wouldn't get past any review board. But no, I, you know, and, and from there on, it was just like I caught the bug, you know. I, I knew enough about electronics that I could sort of like put together things that I wanted to see. And that just led me further and further into wanting to do things that more directly interacted with my biology. So, you know, built a couple wearable computers, got into wanting to implant LEDs under my skin. I still haven't gotten around to doing that. A lot of people have done really good work there. I know you guys have talked to a lot of them. Yeah, so that's really where I got started was just like seeing sci-fi movies and wanting to be those people. I was, I am still a huge Ghost in the Shell fan and uh, I identify with that notion of wanting to sort of be able to upgrade and change my body uh, in whatever way that I want to. So uh, biohacking, you know, I, I, you've addressed this on the show before, but it's one of those terms that is so sort of, I don't want to say diluted, but there are a lot of people using it now to describe a lot of different things. It's huge. And so, let's see. I think when um, uh, we had one guest on, I think Cooper will remind me who it was, and they were sort of saying, it encompasses er everywhere. So some people are biohackers that drink coffee in the morning. And then there's some people that are like putting like, you know, battery powered things in their, in their hands and they're biohacking. And it's, it's like, it's so. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, you know, when you get down to it, biohacking is what it, I mean, it's all there, right? Like it does what it says on the tin, like biohacking. You're, you're using that ethos of hacking to approach biological problems. And, you know, in my industry, and I think you've probably talked about this as well, but in my industry, we have the same problem with the term wearable electronics, right? So wearable doesn't mean anything anymore because it could mean e-textiles and e-crafting and stuff like that, or it could mean, you know, the Apple Watch and things like that. So it's, it's become just such an umbrella term. People aren't quite sure how to use it. But at the same time, I think with biohacking, it, it's kind of like pornography, right? You know it when you see it. <laughs> there are there are some people who like you said they get up and or, or like what is the guy with the butter the bulletproof coffee guy you, you know according to him putting butter in your coffee makes it's you a good. a biohacker and it it's not very nice <laughs> no <laughs> i just thought it makes the caffeine go down easier it's all lubed up hey man Listen, I'm all for putting butter on anything. I don't mind a little butter, but yeah, that whole thing, I have opinions about that whole thing that I don't have time to get into right now. But, you know, you have those people on one side of it and then you have, you know, people like Grindhouse Wetware on the other side of it. And I think it's helpful to have sort of subcultures within biohacking. So you have grinding, for instance. I think that describes a very specific sort of approach to biohacking. And so... People will self-organize, you know, and the whole thing will get sorted out eventually. But for now, yeah, it's a confusing term. You, ra you raised the point just there about the, the argument of when is a wearable, wearable, a wearable, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that we, we, we've, we're still trying to get an answer in our heads, and obviously it changes for a different person, but when does a wearable become a biohack, grinder, hack type thing? Man, that's rough. I think that there are... That really gets down to the question of 
when does something start interacting with your biology, right? In some ways, you know, we have, we have senses that uh, extend beyond the boundaries of our body. So we have eyes and ears and things like that. So photons, you know, from light years away are technically affecting our biology. But, you know, does that mean that my cell phone is a biohack? Like, I'm not sure. I think having cell phones definitely makes us more cyborgs now than we were, you know, before they existed. But people know what they're talking about when they say biohacking or grinding. And I think most people wouldn't identify, you know, wearing an Apple Watch as biohacking or grinding. But if you're wearing, say, a Fitbit or something like that, and you're monitoring your um, biological state with it, you know, monitoring how much you're moving around, maybe your heart rate and pulse, things like that maybe that gets closer to biohacking. I'm not sure. I think it also has to do with closing that feedback loop, right? So just monitoring a biological system may not necessarily be biohacking, but closing that loop, creating a control loop and actually affecting that biological system with the data that you're gathering, I think that's definitely biohacking. So yeah, I think it's a blurry line, right? I think some wearables probably count as um, biohacks, and I also don't kind of believe in this concept that you're only a true biohacker or it's only a true biohack if it's under your skin or if you can't take it off or something like that. Because, you know, I think in some ways that sort of limits the number of people who can get involved because there are people for whom that's just not possible. Um, people with compromised immune systems, people, you know, problems we hope to solve in the future. But in the meantime, um, there are people that just can't get involved in that way and they still have contributions to make. So I think there's definitely, it's useful, right, to know what's just wearable technology and what's a biohack. But I also don't think that either of them should be exclusive to the other. I think um, what we've had on uh, Levy Babbitts from London, who who uh, is the creator of the North Sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is the compass that, that vibrates. It's an external piece of equipment, but in order to wear it, you need to get a subdermal anchoring, I think it's called. And this, this is the one that usually divides a lot of people because on one hand, it's, it's adding a sense, mm-hmm. but it's not inside. So it's, it's like the wearable argument for, for that is, is, is very, very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It, it's, Again, though, that's making the argument on whether or not something is removable, I, th- I feel like. That's kind of taking that as the, as the definition of a, of a grind or a, or a biohack. And, I mean, if that definition works for people to kind of, you know, help curate the, the projects they're looking at, that's fine. But, you know, I think that definitely falls under, like, a biohack. I think, to some extent, it's probably unnecessary to mount it using subdermal anchors, but I've done plenty of unnecessary things because I thought they were cool. And I think that there are definitely things to be learned by implanting these devices, even when they would work outside the body. And I also think that there are things to be learned by, you know, a lot of people have made this point of sort of casual discovery, right? So you're more likely to take something off and not 
be wearing it at a time when you might have been wearing it and made some useful discovery just because you didn't realize it was on you and you do something and it reacts in some way you weren't expecting. And then you have sort of this profound sense of like, oh, this is part of me now. So it's one of those discussions that it's a fun discussion to have. I don't know how useful it really is in the grand scheme of things, but it's one that people are going to keep on having. So so to follow back on one of your statements talking about not limiting the field, I want to take it a little bit further with this question of, have you ever heard of the notion of identifying as a psychological cyborg? And that has been brought up by a few people in, in the field uh, working towards drafting a declaration of cyborg rights, Rich McKinnon and uh, Neil. Oh, no. Neil Harbison? What? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But they have brought up in a couple of their talks that I've seen where they discuss the idea of being able to identify as like a psychological cyborg. Uh, it makes me curious with you opening the field saying uh, we don't want to limit it. How far can, can you go? You know, I know grinders are very, very protective of the idea of it's not a hack unless it's under the skin or if you're really altering or playing with your own biology just makes me say, okay, then if we're not going to limit it, how far do we go until uh, much like I, w I would ask them is, you know, how far can you augment without losing your humanity? It's like, how far can we go before we lose our biohack? Right. That's interesting. The, were, was one of those uh, people involved in that incident in the uh, French McDonald's where the person tried to take their, I know that there was a, an incident where somebody got upset because they were wearing a camera but the, it was uh, bolted to their head. Um, yeah, that was Neil. Um, he's was he's Neil? been attacked a couple times where people that were sick or deranged were assuming it was basically, a, he was like a glass hole and right. uh, re didn't remove it from his skull, thank goodness, but they did break the tip yeah. to where it had to, a portion of it had to be repaired for that sense to be restored. Yeah, I think incidents like that provide an impetus for people to want to create a protected identity around the idea of being a cyborg. And I totally understand wanting to, you know, form, form a, a group that could, I don't know necessarily if you need specific legal protection, but at least some sense of, of being able to inform the greater sort of populace that, you know, there are people walking around who, who have these augmentations now who you know, they, they're, you should treat them just like you would treat anybody else. And also they're not looking to invade your privacy. And in many cases, they're the sort of people who are actually looking to protect your privacy and are involved in organizations that want to protect your privacy, which gets into a whole sort of debate over technology versus privacy and how far can we go before we, we lose privacy and, and how instrumented can our lives be and still retain a sense of being alone and being able to do things in private. I, I've never heard the term psychological cyborgs. What, could you explain what, what they're getting at with that? From what I gather, they were trying to have it explained as people that have not yet been augmented at this point in their lifespan, yet identify with that subculture and may or may not in the future wish to. It's kind of like a, um, they like the idea, but 
the technology isn't there yet, so they don't feel the need to actually augment themselves, but yet they still feel a part of it. I guess that's the easiest way I could describe it in my my own perception of it. It kind of leaves me uh, asking, uh, I need to know more about what they're implying as well. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that. Uh, there are definitely people who I talk to, you know, at, on a day-to-day basis who will say, you know, I'm glad people are, are doing this. I don't want to be a pioneer. But when the technology is ready, like, they, they, they may even be early adopters, you know, but they're looking for that commercialization, you know, they're looking for some more people to kind of jump off the bridge with them so that they don't feel like they're taking a huge risk uh, with some of these technologies. And I totally get that. And I, I think that, you know, these, these are people who at some point are going to want to buy this technology when it becomes commercialized. And so I think they know what they want it to do, which is really valuable. Uh, as a hacker, I know how to solve problems and I have ideas about what I want things to do. But it's always the, the most fruitful conversations I have with people, not just about biohacking, but about hacking or building things in general, is conversations with people who don't know what's possible and who just want a thing right? Because they'll give you a really good problem to solve because they don't censor themselves. Because a lot of people who are really well informed about the, the technology um, and sort of where things stand right now, they censor themselves in conversation because they don't want to say something that makes them sound unrealistic or like a noob, you know, they don't want to say something and have someone go, oh, well, yeah, that's cool. But you know, that's 20 years out, 30 years out, like who cares about that right now? And I think that that's, uh, an unfortunate reality of having conversations in the in the tech space, you know, but you don't have that with people. A lot of these people, I'm assuming, are just people who are like, yeah, that they're super into the culture. They're super into the idea of changing their bodies in useful ways, but they just need some, not a guarantee of safety, but at least like a guarantee that like, this is something people are doing now and it's available and you can go get it. And um, yeah, I think, there's definitely a place for them in biohacking. I psychological cyborgs sounds fine. I, you know, people are free to label themselves. Uh, I think that's as good a label as any. The, the idea of like a cyborg rights movement or organization or document is interesting to me. I think it may be too specific. I think cyborgs and biohackers and grinders are looking for kind of the same things that a lot of other groups are looking for. They want less regulation where it's not necessary. They want bodily autonomy above all else. They want data privacy. You know, these are things that they have allies in other spheres, political and and social spheres, that maybe they're not reaching out to right now. I don't know if this is off topic or if it's uh, kind of a tangent, but I've always felt like there's a kind of a startlingly small amount of support in the people I've talked to in the biohacking and um, grinder communities. There's not a lot of vocal support for the transgender movement. And to me, from a, from a standpoint of, of the, the ideals of biohacking, it seems so cut and dry. Like, that should be like you want to change your body to better fit the way that you see yourself in your head. That's, that's exactly what we want to do. 
I, I feel like there are a lot of people there fighting for a lot of the same things. And, you know, I don't mean that the biohacking community should try to co-opt that movement or, or get involved really in any way that would be disruptive. Because I'm sure that there are people in that community who don't want to be associated with the biohacking community. Because a lot of the things we want to do are a lot more extreme than that. But yeah, I think not limiting ourselves to the idea of cyborg rights, but just sort of looking towards an overall philosophy of bodily autonomy and human rights, I think is, is, is huge. And probably in the future, you know, the label human rights will hopefully sound dated and we'll get somewhere closer to people's rights or agents' rights, right? When we have people who aren't humans, around, whether they're completely artificial or they're transhuman or whatever they are. Um, I think we'll have people who aren't humans and, and people will need rights um, outside of the label of human rights. So I think that's another, that's 50, 100, 200 years down the line, but it's something to think about now. That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good answer. I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense when, when, when you think about it uh, this way anyway. I think Luckily, a lot of the people that I've come across in the community do think the same way as you. I would hope that we'd challenge that if that wasn't the case. And you raise a good point in terms of a lot of people think about an end product. And I think one of the things that I've seen, especially for myself, is with the implantable RFID. A lot of people say, okay, let me know when you, when you can pay with it. I'll definitely get one. And that's, that's the end goal. And with that and the phrase that we seem to have coined, which is the, the right to augment, which is what you're, what you're speaking about, a lot of people tend to believe this is because the community we're in, it's, it's a fairly big community, but it's so, so close. It's closed off to the rest of the world. And it might just be because we're not hitting the mainstream. So what do you think is preventing the biohacking sphere becoming into the mainstream? I think it may be just the problem of practicality. I think that people make a lot of arguments for biohacking based on practicality maybe where it isn't applicable. I can't make a good argument for why I have chips in my hands, right? Like one of them will unlock my, the door of my truck and one of them has all my contact information on it and, and some other personal information on it. You know, do I need that? No, probably not. I carry a physical ID in my wallet. I have keys to my truck like that. I, you know, I can't make a, a good practical argument. And I think that that, keeps a lot of people out of it because it just, they go, okay, well, you don't really need that. It's not going to be that important for me in the future. I'm never going to need it. You know, it's a cool hobby, but you just leave me out of it. And I think some people probably don't need to make a practical argument for their hacks and their augments. I think if you just told people like, this is a cool thing, either this is a cool thing that I wanted to do and I did it and now like look at these cool results that I have, or this is the way that I imagine myself in my head and I'm trying to be more like that thing, just trying to be more myself. I think those are totally legit reasons to do something. And I think um, in the same way that tattooing and body piercing has entered the mainstream in the past, you know, couple decades, I think the same thing will happen with um, other types of body modification, including biohacking and grinding through a lot of the same avenues. I think that the, the people involved in the biohacking community right now 
will become sort of the shop owners and the and the parents and the sort of the grown-ups in the real world do you know who people meet and and realize like oh like regular everyday people have these things and then once once there's some commercial product that takes advantage of that technology it will really sort of enter the mainstream in the same way that you know when tattoo parlors started opening in shopping malls and they weren't scary places you know, full of gangsters or sailors or whatever people imagined they were full of before, then, you know, soccer moms started getting tattoos. So that's, <laughs> I, I think it's probably partially a problem of there's no need for it to be mainstream right now because there's, there's no practical argument for it. And uh, also that it's just still a scary underground thing and it just takes time for things to leach into the mainstream. But I think it will. I, I can, totally see a world where it um, latches on to other types of body modification and gets pulled into the mainstream. And I think that that's easily within my lifetime. I think a couple, maybe the next 10 years, you know, we see the first maybe light up tattoos or something like that. And it's going to be something that in the biohacking community, we're all going to roll our eyes at guaranteed it's going to be something where you know we're going to be scrolling through our facebook wall and there's going to be like a video from like now this or buzzfeed or something like that it's going to be you know now you can get a light up tattoo at this place in the uk and it's you know it there people are lining up around the block and it yeah exactly and it's going to be people at you know video of people dancing at burning man with light up tattoos and we're all going to roll our eyes but that's i mean that's that's what happens when things get mainstreamed right and so yeah i think that's that's probably how it's going to happen and then it's going to become cooler from there um you just kind of gotta be careful what you wish for i think so picture you know in the future we're now sitting here it's become mainstream etc and like you were saying a lot of people look for the solution as a consumer you look for that end product but a lot of us in the community develop for ourselves. You know, I have a chip in my hand because I wanted a chip in my hand. You know, not, not because it serves any ultimate end goal. But do you think that this means that eventually there'll be a split in the community where you have some people developing stuff as a, as a wholly consumer product and then some people doing the, the more daring things that aren't confined by what a normal consumer product would be? You know, that's interesting. It's probably... I think it's probably a mixture of, of the, like, I think you may be, you may see a split in the community as far as what people put most of their energy into. But at the same time, I can't see it splitting to the point where they're not still sharing projects and information. I think, you know, in, in sort of the industry that I'm in, where you're looking at hobbyist electronics from the level of, a guy wanting to build his own garage door opener that he can text and it'll open his garage door all the way up to, you know, some guys at a Silicon Valley office building a $700 juicer. Uh, you know, that represents a split in the community of embedded electronics development, right? But at the same time, the people who are developing commercial products are also still hacking at home. And they're taking the things that they're learning from developing commercial products and adding it back to the open source community. So I think, yeah, there probably will be a split at some point where you have people who 
you know, are going and raising venture capital and coming up with ways of actually manufacturing these implants and, you know, bothering with all of the safety rigmarole and all of the red tape to get things commercialized. And that'll be what they feel strongly about doing, whether it's because they want to make money or because they think that commercialization is how you mainstream these things or, you know, no matter what their sort of underlying motive is, I, I think that there will be people who want to do that more than they want to just hack. But I think everybody's going to want to hack. I think that hacking at home and doing things that you can't get away with doing with venture capital or with or under some other company uh, is always going to be part of this community because it's kind of part of technology in general. People want to try things on their own to see what's possible and not put anyone else at risk and, and just sort of say like, look, this can be done and you don't have to do it. No one has to do it. I just did it because it was cool. You know? So talking about projects, uh, actually you mentioned the YouTube videos, what have you earlier. That's totally why I asked you to, if you wanted to be on this, cause I watched your YouTube video in which you actually injected it XMT into your body and then, uh, described building the entry system into your truck. It just makes me wonder that much more what other projects might you be working on and if you are incorporating any of these projects with your implants or possibly implanting the project later on. That video is really interesting because I had, in that video, I actually think I show the scar from my other implant. Before I did the XNT, I did the... Um, whatever the 125 kilohertz RFID one is. And I did that at home, you know, at home alone. I set up a camera and recorded it. I don't think I ever put it on the internet. I'm not sure. And now that I knew that I could do it, I wanted to do another one. And it was something that was interesting enough that I was talking about it to the, our videographer at SparkFun. And he was like, can I tape it? And I was like, do you, like, can we? Like, is that something SparkFun will put on the YouTube page? And he was like, yeah, I don't see why not. So yeah, we did that. And that YouTube video is one of our most viewed, but I think it's mostly people stumbling onto it from RFID conspiracy, Illuminati confirmed type YouTube video playlists. And I still get, I still get notifications. You know, I'll be walking around, I'll be minding my own business. I'll be grocery shopping and my phone will beep and I'll pick it up and it'll be somebody letting me know that I'm going to hell. <laughs> and you know that just happens occasionally and I, I at first I used to be really defensive about it and get in arguments theological arguments with people which is ridiculous and now it's just I see it and I'm like okay well this is part of their you know whatever their thing is that they're doing they're just in the middle of a, a late night on you on the weird side of YouTube so I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave myself out of that experience so yeah other other projects I've done more RFID triggered things. Um, obviously, when you have uh, RFID and near field chips in your hands, you want to find more things that they could be useful for. I haven't actually implemented more door locks or access control stuff. Um, I was in the middle of doing an RFID drive encryption thing for on my old laptop, but then my laptop just crashed entirely. And I have a new laptop now that is much thinner and sexier and I don't want to hack the hardware on it quite yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm still nervous to touch it. So, but yeah, I, there, there are a lot of RFID related projects, mostly the 125 kilohertz chip, just because 
they're, you know, the modules to interface with these things are dirt cheap now. And so you can do a lot with that. As far as implanting things, I, I, I have so many ideas and I have so little time to start actually doing these things. Uh, you know, at work right now, I'm in the special projects division for the next three months working with our founder and one other engineer doing all sorts of crazy projects. Um, I've been trying to sort of angle some biohacking type stuff in there so that I can use some, you know, company resources on that. But it also, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to do and just so little time and so little money. Honestly, it's still an expensive field to be hacking in. You know, when you're looking at sending things off to people for vapor deposition of conformal coating and, you know, I have Ziploc bags full of samples of implant grade silicone and just, you know, stuff laying around the shop that, it's expensive to get into, right? But I've been working with uh, a friend of mine on coming up with sort of a groundwork for how I'm gonna do biohacking projects in the future. So what I'd really like to figure out is all of the first, sort of the first step problems of building uh, implantable devices. So the, a lot of these problems are things that the biomedical device industry has kind of figured out. They figured it out on a different scale and with a different sort of timeline of when these, when and how these things are worked on. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of problems. There are all the classic problems, right? So power is a problem, powering these things. Everyone talks about, like, we need a new battery technology or we need um, a better way to do inductive charging or something with supercapacitors or and and there are a lot of approaches that people are exploring and i think that the two biggest problems are that the power problem and the communication problems so i don't know how much beyond just putting rfid and nfc tags under our skin i don't know how many experiments have been done with uh, radio communication you know from inside the body to outside and especially uh, not just from point to point, but sort of creating mesh networks, personal area networks, you know, of all of the devices that you might have implanted. And I think that if somebody can solve those problems in a way that's sort of generic and reproducible for other people's projects, uh, I think that would be a huge step forward for the community. So I'd really like to really hunker down and work on power problem some sort of radio communication problem or if there was some wacky way to send signals through the body using the the low conductivity of of, of skin or something like that uh, i'd like to figure that stuff out on the other hand there are a lot of hacks that i just want for myself that you know i'm ready to just jump right in and, and start working on one thing that i was really gung-ho about a couple years ago and then just stopped working on it because I didn't have time was doing more with the sort of quantified self movement, but more focused on the brain. So quantified self largely seems like it boils down right now to health and athletics sort of enthusiasts and also life extension enthusiasts, um, which is cool. And they're looking at things like, you know, what they eat every day, what they expel every day, their heart rate, the, all of the sort of biomarkers you look for, for health. Uh, management. But no one's doing that with, there are fewer people, I should say, there are people doing this. There are fewer people doing this with the mind. Um, I know that you interviewed somebody and I cannot remember her name now, 
but she was talking about wanting to have uh, subdermal implants in her head so that she could have a EEG all the time. This was early in your podcast, I think. But That was Melanie uh, Sagato. She'll actually be speaking at DEF CON, the biohacking village, if you make it out this July. Oh, that's right. Awesome. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it out this year, but um, I'm really hoping I'll make it out next year. My boss is going to be out there with with some SparkFun guys. The last session of this special projects division of SparkFun built a uh, robotic safe cracker. His, his, uh, Nate's wife bought him a safe on Craigslist that didn't have a key or a combination. And so he built a robotic safe cracker to get into it and it cracked it in 45 minutes and uh, there was nothing in there. But, <laughs> but, but the robot is cool. So they're going to go show that off, but I'm not going to tag along this year, maybe next year. Are they going to be presenting that anywhere like the hardware hacking village or lock picking village? I, I don't know. Um, he, he was actually uh, submitted a talk and it was accepted. So it's going to be, I don't know what track it's on. I actually don't know anything about it beyond the fact that right now he is scrambling to find uh, somebody in Vegas who has that same model safe so he doesn't have to ship the one he has out to, <laughs> to DEF CON. But yeah, she was talking about, uh, what was her name? Melanie, Melanie Sagato. Yeah. She was, she was talking about wanting to do uh, an implant EEG, which is exactly um, a project that I have been really interested in doing for a while now. And one of the ways that I approached it was I have been following a couple of people online who have um, metal mohawk piercings. So they have sort of like uh, subdermal anchors um, placed under their scalp. Uh, sometimes they're connected uh, under the scalp. Sometimes they're individual anchors. And then they screw studs into them. So they have sort of a mohawk looking arrangement of, of metal studs on their head. And I think that that's basically the hardware for the conductors. And I think if you bring the signals outside the body before you amplify them, it, that, that might cause problems. I, I'm not sure. Part of the, I know um, what Melanie was saying was that part of the advantage of having EEG under the skin is that you don't have to worry so much about the noise to signal ratio is better because your signal is so much stronger and the noise is, is partially blocked. But I think uh, also, just having the signal acquisition sort of under the skin probably gets you a lot closer than uh, just doing it from the scalp. So I think step one on that might just be to get these sort of subdermal implants similar to what the metal Mohawk guys are getting. And then hooking up a sort of a traditional EEG or, or uh, an open source uh, EEG module to that and just seeing if the signal acquisition is better. And then if it is, uh, you can start looking at putting together something, maybe something that's built a lot like these metal mohawk implants, where you have a lot of studs all on the same sort of strip, and that strip might be a piece of flexible PCB that has, uh, you know, an inductive power circuit on it, as well as maybe some sort of radio, or you could do the radio and the inductive power together uh, using something like the using the Qi protocol and have some uh, amplifiers and stuff in there. And you could have basically an entirely implanted EEG in sort of a strip of flex flexible or partially flexible PCB, you know, embedded in uh, silicone with, with uh, some sort of conformal coating. And so, you know, that I have a feeling that I know how to construct that, 
Uh, I could sit down and do the board layout for it, the actual PCB for it, no problem. It's it's not a complicated circuit. It's mostly borrowed from the Open EEG project, and then you know designing to certain constraints, the size and the fact that you can only do really a one-sided flex PCB before it gets super expensive. But that's a problem I can solve. The problems I can't solve are the actual implant procedure. That's far beyond any sort of implant that I've done myself. And uh, I also don't know very much about signal processing, which is a huge part of EEG. Uh, I think there are a lot of people now who can get EEG data. You know, you can go out and buy something like the Epoch headset and get really decent EEG data, but interpreting it, turning that data into knowledge is a huge task. And I know that from talking both to the people at Epoch and also to the people at MindWave. I talked to MindWave for a long time. I was partially responsible for getting them, for making them one of our suppliers at SparkFun and selling the MindWave headset. And ultimately, I sort of gave up on the MindWave headset because I wasn't convinced, really, by the results I was seeing out of it. But I talked a lot to one of their third-party development engineers, and he said that that is the secret sauce in that industry is developing the algorithms to interpret the EEG data that you're getting, and then basically burning those algorithms into firmware on an ASIC and selling that, that device we already have a nice open source EEG project going. I think they're called open EEG. They just did a, it was either a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo last year to build V2 of their board. It went really well. Open BCI. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They've done a really good job designing this board. And I think that a community around designing the algorithms or the procedures to interpret that data is going to be just as important I was going to say in the future, but right now, really, right now is the time to do that. And that's a problem I can't solve either. So yeah, that's a, that's a project I'd be really interested in, partially from a mental health standpoint. So for the most of my life, I've had a, a, a panic and anxiety disorder that's been really disruptive to my life. It started when I was in uh, middle school, went away in high school for a while, had a huge resurgence after high school. Then I finally started controlling it with medication. You know, I moved out of my home state, got out on my own, and then it sort of started to creep back. I had a really rough year two years ago, had to take some leave from work, um, you know, and really realized how disruptive this is for a lot of people. When you have an anxiety disorder, especially when it's accompanied with something like hypochondria, you do a lot of Google searching and you meet a lot of people who are doing the same Google searching. And I think that the biohacking community probably has a real shot at helping develop solutions for some of these people. Because one thing that I did that really helped me uh, during this period where my uh, anxiety wasn't very well controlled by medication, because most of my panic came from hypochondria, I found that being more aware of the actual state of my body in, in, a, in a sense of like in gathering and interpreting data really helped a lot. So I went on Amazon and I bought, I got a pulse oximeter, I got a blood pressure cuff, and I bought like the cheapest bottom shelf like uh, home blood sugar testing kit that you could get. 
I started pricking my finger multiple times a day, taking uh, blood sugar readings and logging those along with all sorts of other, you know, biological markers, um, as well as uh, all of the subjective notes about how I was feeling uh, at that time and started picking out sort of patterns of, you know, if I didn't eat for too long, I would start to get anxious and it would snowball into this sort of biological response. And looking at those sorts of things really helped assure me that I'm not physically ill. Uh, So in the traditional sense, I'm just overreacting, I'm hypervigilant, and that things are going to be okay. And I think if those systems were embedded in a way where I didn't have to actively think about measuring those markers and I could just track those markers, I think that that would be a huge step towards using uh, a deep learning network to actually take that data, inspect it, and try to warn people ahead of time if they are in a cycle where they might experience more anxiety and possibly even do things, have, have direct effects on someone's biology to help mitigate acute panic attacks. So I, that's another project that I'm kind of looking towards is using EEG data and also other biological markers from more traditional sort of wearable, you know, things like Fitbits or whatever to measure heart rate and uh, things like that. And taking all those markers and integrating them and trying to, to solve the specific problem of panic and anxiety. When you start talking about trying to treat or diagnose a disorder, that's problematic in all sorts of legal ways. And so it, it's a hard thing to start to approach but it's, a, it's something I feel passionate about just from a personal standpoint. You know, it's one of those things you have to just do on your own to yourself and publish uh, your findings. And luckily, I have friends in the hard sciences who can help me to create significant data despite the limitations of, you know, having a sample size of one, having absolutely no uh, ability to do a double blind study or anything like that you know, you have all of these, <laughs> these, these problems, you can't do real science with one person. But uh, you can at least make your data available to real scientists, um, so that they can, they can look at it later in a way that makes sense to them. So luckily, I have friends who, who know how to do that. And uh, I'm going to poke them and try to get them to help me with that. So yeah, that's another thing. I could go on literally for like three days uh, of all the projects that I'm interested in doing. I'd really, uh, I'll tell you one more that I'm thinking about right now is um, ever since I was real little, I've wanted to build a big robot I can ride around in, right? Like everybody wants a big robot. You know, if you look at Matt Orline, who's uh, the Megabots guy, built the big combat robot, he's going to go <laughs> fist fight a robot in Japan or something. Uh <laughs> Which, I mean, it's cool. I, I, I love that guy. He's a Facebook friend of mine. Um, I, I think I've met him at Maker Faire once in San Mateo. That whole project, I think, is is super wacky and fun. It's not practical in any way. It's essentially, you know, a very fancy excavator. But <laughs> but it's very cool. And it's one of those things everybody's you know, dreams of when they're little kids. They're, they watch the Power Rangers and they want to, they want the Megazord, you know? And that's, that's one of those things I want to, I want to do. I want to build a big robot, but I want to incorporate somehow sensors and actuators in my body that can control that robot without me having to touch controls or, or 
you know, move joysticks or basically play a video game. I don't want to be playing a video game. I want to be the big robot, right? So um, I'm in the very early stages now of thinking about how you might use EEG data or embedded accelerometers or whatever it might be to try to more intimately connect yourself to large machines and really get that sense that it's an extension of your own body. So either with the whole grinding aspect of things or even just um, some of the hacky stuff that you do, have you had any problems with like governments and things like that? And is there a, a community around you with local hacker spaces and, and things like that? In, in Boulder, Colorado, it's, it's an awesome place to be working on really any sort of tech related thing, whether it's biohacking or um, just sort of general hardware hacking. You know, we have a few local hacker spaces. To be honest, I'm not very directly involved with a lot of those hacker spaces. I'm friends with a lot of the people at these different hacker spaces. Um, I know uh, a few of the guys over at one of our local uh, hacker spaces called Solid State Depot. And of course, I, I meet people from all over the place at different hacker spaces. You know, people at I3 Detroit. That hacker space is off the chain. While Sparkfun was doing a national tour, uh, I went there and taught, I think, introduction to Arduino, or it may have been wireless communication with XBs. But I, I taught some class there, and uh, yeah, they've just got they've got awesome tools, awesome people. They seem to have a really solid community there. Uh, yeah, cool hackerspace. But yeah, places like that, uh, I have tons of access to. I've met people just because of where I work. And the fact that, you know, I go to Maker Fair and things like that, and they know who I am, and it gives me a chance to learn who they are and, and see the things that they're working on. So I'm sort of loosely connected to the community directly. And I get a lot of access to people to ask questions about the things they're working on, so that if I get stuck somewhere, I know, I, you know, I can go through my phone and I know the person to talk to about that thing, um, which is huge. But yeah, my, my role in, in the whole sort of maker community is really as a content producer and trying to be a megaphone and also a, uh, a vector for cross-cultural contamination. So I try, not to, I try not to have too many separations between all of the subcultures and activities I'm involved in because I think everybody can learn something from what other people are doing. And so often the biggest breakthroughs I have on a project are when I'm watching, you know, when I'm just letting like a YouTube playlist play and all of a sudden I'm watching a YouTube video of somebody, you know, a woodworker somewhere showing how to do some, some type of joinery I've never heard of before. And they have this tool that I've never seen and that tool would be perfect for the thing I'm working on. Right. So like, there's all of this knowledge that's stuck in all these little communities that isn't getting out to everybody else so that they can take advantage of it. And so a big thing that I personally try to do is to just always talk about the things I'm interested in and the things that I'm doing and not compartmentalize it to all of these separate communities and talk to them separately. I want to talk to everybody the same way and be like, a good representative of all those communities. You know, I want to be like the cool cyborg that you meet. If you've never met somebody with a chip in their hand, I want to be like, 
just a cool regular dude with a chip in his hand so that later when you're telling that story, like it gives people a good feeling about that community. It's the same thing with, with any of the other things that I do. And so that everybody can sort of see different sides of, of what everybody's doing. And hopefully there's a little bleed over and people start sharing all of this, um, all of this information that's, that's sort of like trade secrets. So that's, that's, I feel like that's sort of my place in the community is to try to be both a megaphone and also just sort of like a, a place where a lot of different people can meet and sort of like hopefully learn something new. I feel a little bit guilty about how little I actually contribute to open source projects. I think a lot of people are probably guilty of this. Um, we take code from repositories or we take uh, circuit schematics and we alter them and we use them and then we forget, right, to make a pull request and to push that stuff back to people's GitHub repos and to actually push the whole thing forward. To some extent, I get to do that as part of my work. So, you know, I, I build projects that people base their projects on. And uh, so that's, that's good. But I think that I could do better. And a lot of people could probably do better. But I do feel a little bit guilty about how little I'm actually personally involved in both the maker community and the biohacking community, in which there's a lot of overlap, by the way. Talking about local groups, it just made me curious if you've ever made it out since you're in Boulder, which is right next to Denver, to any 303 hacker group uh, meetings or gatherings. I haven't. I totally haven't. You know, I am right next to Denver. I'm 45 minutes from Denver. And I think I, I think I actually go to Denver maybe like three times a year. <laughs> I don't spend any time in Denver. That is something that I would like to get involved in. And absolutely, if you're listening to this podcast and you think you have something to share with me, there's a project you're working on, or you think you can help me with one of my projects, or you just would like to like hang out and talk about biohacking, definitely find me on Facebook and, and talk to me. I would love to get more involved in sort of the local, you know, Denver metro area hacking and biohacking stuff that's going on. I, I'm totally there. I just, it's hard to find the door sometimes, especially with biohacking. So yeah, definitely hit me up on Facebook. That just leads right into the next question at that point. So what would you tell someone uh, thinking about getting their started in biohacking or getting their first implant? Being that cool cyborg that has a chip or guy with a right. chip in his hand, what, what would you share from your own experience to help them get that first start to get their toes wet? I would treat it a lot like somebody who's going, who, who wants to get their first tattoo as somebody with tattoos. I get, I get asked a lot. You know, a lot of people tell me, Oh, I want to get a tattoo. I just don't know what it would be. And you know, and it's like, you know, just get something. And once you get it, like you'll, you believe me, like you'll like it and you'll want to get more. And um, also like people are like, I'm afraid I'll regret it. And here's the secret about psychology is that you're not going to regret it because the cost is too high. So you've, you've already committed to it. So you're going to find a way to justify it in your mind and like it one way or another. And I know that, that maybe that's not the most positive message, but like you're going to like the thing you get because it would be too costly not to like it. As far as like implants, I, my advice would be, do your research, buy them from a reputable person. I always recommend Dangerous Things. I love Dangerous Things. I love Emil and the work that he's doing over there. Totally kick-ass stuff. And so I always recommend those specific devices. 
I so far have refused to do people's implants for them. I just don't feel like I am qualified to do that. Uh, and I don't, frankly, don't want to open myself up to that liability. But I would say, you know, as far as glass capsule implants and even sort of this new generation of flexible implants goes, they are probably as safe as any other sort of recreational activity people are involved in. I have a motorcycle. The motorcycle is much more likely to hurt me than my implants are. You know, it just sort of depends on what level of risk is acceptable in your life. And I would tell anybody who asks me and have told people who have asked me about getting implants, like, just think honestly about the risk. Don't obsess about it. But, you know, ask yourself, is it, is it something that's worth it? And also don't be too hung up about how practical it is. If you just want a chip in your hand so you can tell people you got a chip in your hand, like, I think that's fine too. <laughs> you know, just be able to explain it to them when they ask questions. Don't... <laughs> You don't, don't be somebody with a chip in your hand who when they're like, how does it work? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> they just jammed it in there. It's cool. But, you know, don't be too obsessed with, with having to justify it to people. My main points would be understand the risk so you can accept it. Buy your device from somebody who knows what they're doing. And uh, don't be too obsessed with trying to justify your decision to other people because uh, at the end of the day, no one has to know that you have an implant anyway because... You can't see it from the outside. In your own experience, what does it take to get started in biohacking or general makerspace hacking? Kind of how you go from the kid hacking his brother into like a predominant member of the company and the community that you're, you're, you're in now. I think the biggest thing is becoming a, a, a polymath and really knowing a little bit of everything. The more of a sort of a flat or T-shaped skill set that you have where you know a little bit of everything and then have sort of one specialty, the more conversations you're going to have with people that lead to you getting that opportunity to join a hackerspace or to join a company or to learn a new skill. Because people want to talk about the things that they're interested in. And the more you know about the things that people might be interested in, um, the more fruitful conversations you're going to have. And also, like, that's sort of the point of the whole endeavor anyway, isn't it? To know more things and to learn more so that you can make more things. So I would say, you know, listen to sort of the things that, for instance, Adam Savage has been saying over the years. You know, he's a huge, um, he was a huge influence to me. You know, I grew up watching Mythbusters. And as Mythbusters wound down and as he started getting more involved with uh, Tested.com and, and doing that, on the side, he started speaking more at maker fairs and talking more about what it really means to be involved in the maker community. And I think that there are a lot of parallels between the maker community as a whole and then the smaller biohacking community. And yeah, it's just being open to learn more about lots of little things so that you have something to talk to somebody about. And then you'll meet the person who knows everything about that little thing. And then they'll introduce you to the person who knows this and before you know it, like you just sort of end up pulled in to that community. Yeah, you don't have to study. You don't have to sit around and stare at textbooks. You don't have to, you know, most of the things that I've learned, I've learned from YouTube because I wanted to build something and I didn't know how to do the one thing. And so I just did a YouTube search for that one thing and some 14-year-old you know, made a video about it. And I go, okay, well now I can do it. 
yeah, just find something you want to build. That's the biggest thing. Just find something you want to build and start building it. Even if you don't know how to finish it, start it. Just look up a video on how to start it and just start it and solve the problems as they come one at a time. And just doing that, you're going to learn so much about all these different little things uh, that you didn't even know were part of the, the maker community. And I would say if you want to get started in biohacking specifically, get involved in the, in the forums, get involved with not only biohacking forums, but also body modification forums. Um, people who are professional piercers and tattoo artists have a lot that they can teach the biohacking community about, you know, just general safety when you're messing with the body. I would say do your research on that as well. Do your research on, on, you know, there are so many online resources now for people who want to get into body piercing. And that is where I learned everything that I know about disinfection and sterilization and good aseptic practice and all of that sort of thing. So yeah, if you want to get involved in biohacking specifically, look, look at the body piercers, look at the body hacking and biohacking community and their forums and also just sort of like buy something buy an implant buy an implant kit from uh, dangerous things and even if you're even if you're you don't want to do it yourself or, or you're too scared to do it or you don't know anyone who will do it for you buy the kit and stare at it for a while you know just sort of take a step towards the community and just sort of let yourself like hang out and and get comfortable with it and eventually you'll find your way in um, that's what I did. I bought a kit before I thought that I was capable of of doing it myself. And then I had it for a couple of weeks and I went, oh yeah, I can do that. And I did and, and it turned out fine. And now, you know, I'm one of these guys who likes to have, a, I like to have a toolbox full of tools. And that's how I know that I'm involved with something. You know, I, electronics, you know, I went out and I bought a nice soldering iron and all of the little things that I need. And um, in biohacking, I went and I bought a little toolbox and I have scalpels and scalpel blades and all different sizes of forceps and needles and, and all sorts of things for, for piercing and for injecting and for uh, implanting. I went and bought a bunch of veterinary sutures and you know, all of that stuff. And I have it in a box and it's my wetware toolkit, you know, and that's, I think that's a big thing too, is just, you know, make yourself a toolkit. And even if you don't think you're going to need something, Put it together just so you know you have it and you're like, okay, I have the toolkit. I'm part of this thing. Like nobody's an expert. Just hop in. Just hop in and do it. All right. That's where we're going to hit the pause button. Be sure to check back next week for part two of our conversation with Nick Poole. A special thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you want to learn more about our weekly explorations, check out www.dangerousminds.io for more information. While you're there, be sure to check out how you too can join us on this journey as we dive further into the tech, the projects, and the people behind them within this rapidly growing community of biohacking, grinding, citizen science, implantable technology, and network security. 
please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. You are welcome to find us at www.dangerousminds.io or on our Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash dangerousmindspodcast. And perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Prior to this was higher than science could ever devise. This is a neural interface. We're going to stick it in your face. Still it in your brain and interlace. There's an arms war on and we're going to win the race. Leave everything in the race. Bring the base. Man.